Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! And good morning. It's Annie for you this morning on Solidarity Breakfast. We've got an interesting program today, I'll have to say myself. Uh, We're going to be playing more of the... uh, a speech given by Bill Mitchell, who came down to from Newcastle to uh, the new international bookshop down on the corner of uh, Victoria and Ligon, and uh, he gave a great speech about uh, things in general, about globalisation, neoliberalism, that sort of thing. But uh, and it's uh, in anticipation of a book that he and a co-author are going to be bringing out. And uh, he's outlining their argument, basically, around uh, the state of affairs in terms of economics and uh, the way forward for progressive uh, politics. So it's quite interesting. Last week we were talking; he was talking about uh, how people have confused uh, neoliberalism with globalism and it's not the same thing. He, he argues quite clearly that, uh, this is, uh, inappropriate, uh, conflation. And if you want to hear that, you can go back to, uh, Solidarity Breakfast podcast and, uh, listen to the first part of that speech. It's in the first, uh, half hour of the program. Anyway, he goes on today to, uh, in the second part, to uh, look a little bit more at taxes and then at solutions, which is quite interesting. Uh, It was a long speech, so uh, we'll have to give you the last part. You'll have to hold your breath until next week for the last part of uh, his, uh, Bill Mitchell's uh, beliefs about uh, where things should go in the future in terms of a possible future for a progressive society where people actually live a balanced life uh, between uh, uh, family, work and uh, leisure, which is, uh, of course, the actual meaning of the eight-hour movement, which was started in 1856. I was just walking past the memorial ju- uh, just near a Victorian Trades Hall the other day and thinking how delightfully uh, elegant the memorial itself is uh, and uh, actually the meaning of... Uh, the eight-hour movement. Not it's not. It's been uh, truncated to uh, this idea of eight hours work, which is it was a much bigger idea than how much work one did. But work was an important component, and it wasn't just for making a living. 
after that, we're uh, going to take you to the uh, rally that was on last night outside uh, the uh, State Library. It was uh, a continuing conversation about uh, what's happening in America, it, but it's actually uh, brought it to Australian politics, the reaction of uh, Turnbull to Trump's rise uh, and uh, general issues around right-wing uh, uh, growth and uh, the attacks, racist attacks, uh, which have become clear with uh, Trump's recent decision to uh, put bans on eight Muslim country entry people into America and uh, how he's really stirred the pot. Uh, I think it's uh, interesting because uh, I think a lot of people think that uh, Politics doesn't affect their normal lives. Uh, generally, politics affects every, you know, uh, straightforward mainstream parliamentary or congressional politics does affect their lives, but it's a bit more like a lobster in a pot, very slow kill. But uh, with Trump in, it's straight to the jugular. <laughs> a very Dracula-type arrangement going on in America at the moment. And uh, after that, all those people out there who are Kevin Healy fans will be very pleased to note that Kevin's back in the driver's seat with his the first edition of This Is The Week That Was, which will be on at around 8.20. Following that is a return. First episode of Humphrey McQueen's Pearls of Wisdom in this uh, 150-year anniversary of Das Kapital. That's coming up in September. So if you haven't read it, or if you uh, read it a long time ago, a good idea to get your primers out and uh, refresh your memory. But anyway, we'll have lots of help from uh, young Humphrey. Yarra City Council is celebrating International Women's Day on the 8th of March with a week of community events and activities to highlight and recognise the achievements of women. Two key events are the presentation of the Inspirational Women of Yarra Award, Morning Tea and Awards Ceremony and Yarra's International Women's Day Business Luncheon. The Council is also hosting a range of exciting activities including women's panel discussions, art and photographic exhibitions, Zumba and yoga classes, women's only swim session and mums and bubs story time. Check out yarracity.vic.gov.au or phone 9205555 for more information. City of Yarra is a 3CR supporter. And I know if you're listening to this, you're a 3CR supporter. And this month is your chance to resubscribe or to get someone to subscribe as well to ensure that all your favourite programs continue. As I threatened, Bill Mitchell, he's the uh, he's a professor of economics at uh, Newcastle University, but he's so much more. If you look at his bio, you'll be absolutely dizzily uh, impressed. But anyway, Bill's got lots of things to say about, uh, and he's got a long, a lot of long experience. So let's hear what he's got to say. This is the second part in his speech that he gave in August at the new international bookshop. Taxes don't fund anything, by the way. There's a statement. So what the hell do they do? Well, they take purchasing power off us. Why would, the, why would the government want us to have less purchasing power 
rather than more? Or you think about it. If, if it wants to... The government has no resources. We, we private citizens, have all the real resources. Labor, capital, <coughs> land. Government really doesn't have anything. And so its challenge in running its socio-economic program is to extract resources from us and then redeploy them in government policy programs. That's what governments do. And so the thing is, it's got to make... It's got to create space what I call real resource space to give it room to use those resources to run its programs. Well, how does it do that? Takes taxes off us, stops us using those resources. Because if it didn't do that, there'd be too many claims on the finite real resources at any point in time and you'd get inflation. So taxes have got nothing to do with funding government spending. They've got all to do with creating space, in, of real resource space, in which the government can then spend back in. And you'll similarly then realise that all this stuff about governments issuing treasury bonds and the Australian Office of Financial Management and all of that infrastructure created to issue government debt is basically irrelevant. The government doesn't... If the government's running a deficit, which means it's spending more than it's taxing, it doesn't have to borrow from the non-government sector. Why would it? It issues the currency. And so that's why August 1971 is very important, because before the Bretton Woods system collapsed, there could only be a certain amount of money in the economy relative to the exchange value. If there was too much money, then the currency would start to de depreciate. That's putting it crudely, by the way. It's more complex than that. And so the governments were constrained financially because they had signed up to the fixed exchange rate system. But once that system collapsed and the currency wasn't backed by anything anymore, no, in terms of gold backing, we have what we call, you know, the money in our pockets and... The, the funds that flow into bank accounts electronically are, are what we call fiat currency. They're just, they're just dictated by fiat. The Australian government just said that the Australian dollar is going to be its currency. So after August 1971, the government didn't need to borrow a cent. It could just spend whenever it likes. Now, you think back to 2001. <laughs> Very, it was hilarious. Costello had been running four or five years of surpluses by then and paying back, not, not reissuing maturing debt, because debt matures and then they reissue it. And who was complaining about that? Does anyone know? Capitals. Sydney Futures Exchange went ape because they said, how dare you create thin bond markets? Thin bond markets means there's not many bonds to be traded because the government wasn't reissuing them. They were just letting them mature, paying them out with the surpluses and then not reissuing them. Sydney Futures Exchange went crazy and all of the investment banks then bought in. So Costello had a, a, a debt inquiry and the Treasury ran a debt inquiry. 
and the documents are still out there. You'll be able, you could, if you're interested, you can go and see the the submission I made to the inquiry. And what was concluded was that what became obvious was that if the government, if if their story is correct, that the bond debt's necessary to fund the government spending. Well then, why would we be wanting to issue new debt if they were running surpluses? What did the inquiry recommend and what did Costello agree? To continue issuing debt at a level necessary to satisfy the needs of the investment bank community, even though they were going to run, continue to run surpluses. What does that, what question do you then arise in your minds? Well, what the hell were they issuing? What, what does the debt actually do? It's corporate welfare. Because, because it's totally risk-free, because it's backed by a currency-issuing government that can never run out of money, so a government in, with that status can never default on any liabilities issued in its own currency. It's a risk-free financial asset, and so when there's uncertainty out in the investment markets, these investment bankers knew that they could always go back and manage their pessimism by buying more government debt and selling more risky debt. It's corporate welfare. It was guaranteed annuity per year. And it also, for Sydney Futures Exchange, it allowed them to price their other riskier assets off a risk-free benchmark. It's corporate welfare. And it was the same bastards who were pleading to the government to continue issuing them with their, their corporate welfare, who were then coming out in the public debate demanding that, uh, that uh, Howard and Costello tighten up income support for the unemployed and for the disability recipients. These things should have been headlines in every Australian newspaper, but they just, you know, they float through because they're not part of the neoliberal narrative. And most citizens who call themselves progressive don't even know this sort of stuff. You've got to get educated. You've got to learn what you don't know and then get to know it. But the government does not have to issue any debt ever. How would that work? Well, what, how does government spend? Well, the government spends by the Treasury Department instruct, or the, in, in actual fact it's the Finance Department, instructing the central bank to credit a few bank accounts. So it wants to buy some materials off a tender or something. What happens? Some computer operator types some numbers into a computer. That's spending. And there's, there's a joke goes around that if they miss, if they put in an extra zero, it wouldn't make any difference at all. And, you know, I've been at meetings and conferences where there's been central bank officials and we've, I've actually asked them, would the Reserve Bank ever bounce a, a federal government cheque? Answer, never. So the government never needs to issue debt, it just can instruct the central bank to credit the bank accounts, type in a few numbers. That's the way government spending occurs. Now what they've built is an elaborate accounting framework and an elaborate system of bureaucracy, in this case the Australian Office of Financial Management, which is a division of Treasury. They've built this elaborate infrastructure to make it look as though so the tax revenue goes into a certain account and the, and the 
the debt revenue goes into a certain account and then they pretend they're spending out of that account to make it look as though taxes and bond issues are funding their spending. It's just all smoke and mirrors. It's a, it's a part of the neoliberal ideology and the neoliberal attempt to, to make it hard for governments to spend. Because they know that if, the government, if they have a, a regulation that says that the government has to match its deficit dollar for dollar with issuing debt to the private sector, well then, if the government wants to run bigger deficits, it has to accept higher public debt. And they know that they can then demonise the public debt because people like us don't understand it very well. We think, oh God, we're going into hock. We apply our own individual experience that we can't have too much debt on our MasterCard or whatever it is. So therefore the government can't. Well, that's a load of nonsense. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen and you're listening to 3CR. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've just heard the uh, first part of the second part of Bill Mitchell's talk. It's a bit eye-opening, isn't it? (laughs) It's all a bit... um, And the next bit is even worse when you relate it to uh, some of the things that have been going on. It's quite clear that uh, we are in the midst of smoke and mirrors. Bill Mitchell. A lot of the progressive narratives, particularly in Europe but it's starting to infest here, is this notion that government should have basic income. In other words, every citizen should be given a, a basic income. Because obviously globalisation, so the story goes, will render all the jobs redundant and we've got to be able to eat, so we should have a basic income. Now, it's very interesting because if you go back into the literature, who do you think was the one who, who introduced basic income to the literature? Milton Friedman. And if you think about it, it's, uh, uh, it's constructing individuals as consumption units. That, that these unemployed are trouble, you know, and we just got to give them a dollar, shut them up by taking them off the dollar and giving them a basic income. And giving them just enough consumption to, to shut them up and we, everything will be cool. We can go on having government policies that create millions of unemployed. Well, that's not a progressive agenda at all. Humans are much more than a consumption unit. And we know that because the government has fiscal capacity, it, it chooses the unemployment rate. And moreover, that, that employment is, a, is more than just earning an income. Employment is a social activity. It's a it's a, a way in which we get self-esteem. And so a, a, a one progressive element that, that I've advocated for, oh, well, I don't know, since 1978, since I was a student at Melbourne University, is what I call a job guarantee. That the, the federal government, at a minimum, should offer a acceptably minimum wage job, and that includes social wage on top of that, childcare, leave and superannuation, all the rest of it, an acceptable minimum wage job to anybody who wants it, and it should be unconditional and always available. Job guarantee structure, if everybody's got the chance to go, and I I bet you if the government announced it tonight, unemployment would drop dramatically and underemployment would virtually disappear there'd be massive demand for that. And I've worked on, a, on large 
job guarantee schemes in with the UN and the ILO in South Africa where millions were employed. And the IMF said, oh, no, no, this is stupid. Well, you go into the townships where we, we were working and you see that the advantages that giving, giving an adult in, a, in a, a family a guaranteed job, you see that then their kids get school books and go to school because the dad's got, or the mum's got some income. So, you know, I, I sort of just dismiss the uh, Glebe Road latte set and uh, accept that for the time being a job guarantee might be a band-aid remedy. But before the, re the revolution's going to take a lot longer and the human suffering on a daily basis from unemployment is there every day. But if you think again some more, what this job guarantee structure allows us to do is then to have a debate about what's productivity, what's productive work, what's the, what is work? And, you know, I've advocated that uh, I go surfing out at uh, Newcastle Beach. And I know a lot of guys out there in the mornings who, don't, who, who are surfers, don't work, live on the dog. And I've advocated that a job guarantee could employ all the surfers. And what would they do? They could surf. What else would they do? They'd add back to the community. How? Major problem in the East Coast of children getting in trouble in the water, drowning in. Surfers, no, we, we jump in the heavy rips because you get out to the break quicker. So surfers could teach children water safety. They could teach uh, local school groups uh, environmental conser uh, conservation of sand dunes. I'd have all the musicians on the job guarantee. What would they do? They'd play their guitars. But what else would they do? They'd go into school halls and rehearse. And they'd teach children about networks and bands and how to cooperate and how to compose music and, and, and how to string a guitar or put a saxophone read in. And I'd have artists and sculptors and all the rest on job guarantee. And what you can think what's happening here is that these people are employed and being paid a wage, but we're progressively moving away from thinking productive work is working for a capitalist for profit. The work becomes a social event where you're getting an in, a, a guaranteed income to do things that are community and socially productive. And it's bringing back the progressive vision away from a focus on the economy to the society. That's number one. Uh, another part of our manifesto is the debate about climate change. And I'll, 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 the only point I make here is that progressives seem to have been sucked into this idea that every, everything has to be mediated through the price system. So carbon trading systems, carbon taxes, that's all falling into the logic that it's the market that will do things. Well, I would just uh, announce tomorrow that the coal industry's got 15 to 20 years to close and then when it closes, that's it. Coal industry is a massively destructive industry. And I would give it, well, I'd probably give it 10 years because it would take that long to get the adjustment processes involved to make sure the workers didn't suffer as much. But I wouldn't, you know, this, this obsession of progressives and the Labor Party we've, we've, and the Greens with carbon taxes 
and carbon trading systems. They're market-based solutions to something that should be regulated, not, not mediated through the market. We're talking here about a living organism, the environment, and, we, and economists think that it's just part of the price system. That they, that they never can tell you when a, a river is going to die. And that's why regulation has got to come back to the progressive agenda and forget this stuff about everything's got to be mediated through the market. That's neoliberalism. We, uh, we're articulating a, a, a new vision for national industry policy. And uh, part of that has to be a debate and a, a conceptualisation of renationalisation. There's no sense to have power companies and water companies and banks as private capitalist firms. There's no sense at all. There's nothing progressive in that at all, and there's everything progressive about renationalising. And we're not talking about going back to the old corrupt national industries that that uh, had nepotism and all and cronyism and all those dirty deals. We're educated more now. We've got, we've got smarter concepts of governance and transparency and accountability. And we understand that, that, a, that a, an effective organisation has got nothing to do with the ownership. It's got to do with the organisational structure and the, the management of them and the, and the buy-in of the workers. External sector constraints. Part of the manifesto is going to discuss how we deal with the external sector, which is sort of one of the bogey persons of the left. Well, even the IMF these days have now gone back to advocating capital controls. So it's quite true that George Soros could destabilise the Australian dollar if he got pissed off with a government that was, was uh, doing things that he thought were not in his corporate interests. But if you had capital controls, he couldn't do it. If, I'm not sure how many people here know about what's going on in Iceland at the moment. Well, Iceland have captured massive amounts of funds from two of the biggest hedge funds in the US, and they won't let them take them out. And what they're now, just recently they announced, well, stuff you. You're, you can cash them out at an incredible discount. And if you don't cash them out at a credible discount, well, then you're going to leave them there and, and earn zero rate of interest on your funds. Capital controls. The state has asserted power over two huge hedge funds that are meant to be able to push the government to run out of money. Well, no, they can't. Unless these hedge funds get private armies and invade, they can't do it. They've got to work through the legislative process. Unemployed, underemployed, receiving social security, getting bullied, penalised or harassed by your job agent or Centrelink. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union is for you. You have rights. Find out more or get involved by going to our website on unemployedworkersunion.com or by calling our national advocacy hotline on 03 83 It's time to fight back. A 3CR supporter. Get up. Push 
And all I could do was try to mimic While the sun hit its fears And the rain fell down like tears Can't tell what's fact or fiction Lost in the clouds of my addiction Harsh light of late night kitchen Got my conscience of my affliction Left home from my volition Stand the state of friction Gone north, east and west Trying to find if I Was blessed Can't tell what's fact or fiction Lost in the clouds of my addiction Harsh light of late night kitchen The diagnosis of my affliction And a piece of nice music from uh, Bipolar Bears, Fact or Fiction. And uh, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We were just listening to Bill Mitchell explaining the world. <laughs> Great stuff. And uh, we're now going to move on to uh, what happened last night at the steps of... Uh, the State Library, uh, it was a rollicking affair. Uh, I'll let them explain themselves uh, because they do, in fact, explain themselves. My name is Annika. I'm the Education Officer for the National Union of Students and I will be uh, your MC for this evening. Before I start, I want to pay my respects uh, to uh, the land that we stand on. We stand on the land of the uh, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to the elders past and present. And we stand in solidarity with all of those who continue to fight oppression, colonialism and genocide. It always was, always will be Aboriginal land. It's been almost two weeks since Donald Trump uh, stood at the White House and accepted uh, the presidency. Almost two weeks since four million people marched across America and told Donald Trump that he is not their president. But it's been a week that has been filled with racism, with xenophobia and with hatred from the top of our society. And everything that Donald Trump stands for, we stand against. 
against his executive order banning refugees for 90 days from entering into America. We stand against his indefinite ban on Syrian refugees. And we stand against his ban on Muslims uh, coming into America. We stand against this. And we know that Donald Trump is intent on attacking every single oppressed group in uh, American society. And we can see this from the orders that he's already signed, uh, the order against funding to abortion groups, the orders that I just mentioned, and his staffers are saying that they're set on introducing uh, an executive order against um, LGBTQTI uh, people. He's a, uh, we know that whatever Trump wants to do, it's going to be against the wishes of uh, ordinary people and of the oppressed. It's going to be uh, extremely uh, horrific. And as soon, though, as soon as these executive orders were signed, we saw people being turned back from American airports, uh, deported from America, and being denied seats on planes to come into the US. A young five-year-old boy was separated from his mother and he was handcuffed. A young baby that was still breastfeeding was separated from their mother. And a man who came to America to see his dying mother was turned back and she has now died without him being able to say farewell. These are the small and heartbreaking stories that make up the sordid novel of Donald Trump's presidency. And our Australian government is full of its own mini Donald Trumps. Scott Morrison said in response uh, to, the uh, to the Muslim ban that he is glad that the rest of the world is finally catching up to Australia's immigration policy. Malcolm Turnbull, instead of uh, being, uh, you know, like the rest of uh, most global leaders, has uh, refused to come out and uh, say uh, anything against Donald Trump because he cannot, because it would be hypocrisy, because of what his government does to refugees and asylum seekers, spending $50,000 per year per refugee to lock them up on detention centres in Manus Island, Nauru. This money is used to house them in mouldy tents, uh, to pay guards who rape and beat them. This is what our our government does and we know we need to stand up against them right here right now and that's exactly what we've seen in America we've seen resistance and solidarity thousands upon thousand people coming to the airports defending our immigrants from being deported 30,000 marching in Boston and tens of thousands elsewhere. And this is the type of resistance that we need to see, to see Donald Trump's racism defeated. So before I introduce the next speaker, we should have a little bit of a chant uh, to get into that mood of resistance and solidarity. Trump says racism, we say no. Border walls have got to go. Trump says racism, we say no. Border walls have got to go. Trump says racism, we say no. Indigenous activist, uh, and she is an activist against all forms of oppression. 
We know that this government uh, targets Indigenous people and it was not so long ago that we saw tanks roll into the Northern Territory, just as we're seeing tanks roll into the Standing Rock occupation camp. So please make Kim Bully more welcome. Thank you. It's so great to see everybody here. First of all, of course, I want to acknowledge that we're standing on Wurundjeri land in the Kulin Nation. I want to pay my respects to elders past and present and, as Anika said, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Uh, I'm a Murray activist from North Queensland, so I'm a long way from home, but I've been in Melbourne for a number of years now. And I think it's really important that we draw the links between not only the struggles uh, in the US that are taking place right now under Trump, but the struggles here in Australia, but also the various different uh, struggles we are fighting here, whether it be refugee rights, for refugee rights, whether it be for women's rights, whether it be for uh, against the attacks on Muslim community, and whether it's attacks on uh, the Aboriginal community. All of these are linked and we need to stand in solidarity with each other. Currently, uh, yes, <laughs> on the very first day, I think it was, of Trump's presidency, the first thing he did was so, um, uh, sign into the Keystone Pipeline and the North Dakota Access Pipelines. Shame, shame indeed. And we know from last year, there were thousands of people at Standing Rock protesting uh, against uh, the North Dakota uh, access line uh, because they were standing in solidarity with the uh, Standing Sioux uh, people who were there who were opposing this uh, uh, this pipeline. More than 180 uh, uh, tribes joined that struggle along with hundreds of th and thousands of people uh, who were not um, from the Sioux nations. It was great to see so many people standing there even in the coldest of winter but they had to fight a hard fight. They were attacked, they were beaten, uh, many were arrested and they had a small victory when it was stayed, but they always knew that they were going to have to keep fighting, and they have kept fighting. When Trump, uh, when Trump won the presidency, there was a small little video that went around that interviewed a number of the Standing Sioux activists, uh, Standing Rock uh, Sioux activists, about what this meant for their struggle. And I think one of the most inspiring things that was said by a young uh, man named Dallas Goldtooth, he said, you know, uh, fuck you, Trump. I'll see you on the streets. And I think that has to be our attitude. That, and we've seen it happening in America, but we have to have that attitude here in Australia. Fuck you, Turnbull. Fuck you, Dutton. Fuck you, Scott Morrison. Fuck all of them. We will see you on the streets. We will stand with the oppressed. We will stand with the marginalised. We will stand with those who, uh, their voices are being silenced by this hideous government, whether it be in America or whether it be here. Here in Australia, of course, we've had our own struggles in the Aboriginal community. In the last couple of years, the, the, under the Abbott and now the Turnbull government, they've tried to close down more than 150 Aboriginal remote communities to ethnically cleanse them. Shame indeed. They, we keep seeing the incarceration of our youth 15 times more uh, than anybody else in the community are being incarcerated. We are seeing the torture of our youths in hell holes like Dondale. 
Shame indeed. These are the things that our country is doing. And when we say no border walls, we have to remember for the last 15 years, Australia has had border walls. They've just been called offshore processing. And our, the refugees, the most vulnerable people in the world who are fleeing war and political turmoil are being locked up for years and years on end. And this is appalling. So we need to stand together. We need to stand and be strong. Fred Hampton, one of the Black Panthers in the 1960s said, we don't fight racism with racism. We fight racism with solidarity. And that's what we do. We fight with solidarity. I'm going to finish now and I'm going to finish with one of the chants that was really inspiring that was part of the immediate airport protest against the Muslim ban. I want you to join in because I think this is true. The chant is, I believe we will win. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. Solidarity, united we stand. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Always was, always will be. Always was, always will be. Our next speaker is from the Islamic Council of Victoria. In America, in response to Donald Trump's orders, uh, there have been burning down of mosques in Texas and many, many more racist uh, actions. But we know that our government trades on Islamophobia as well. We've all seen the newspapers, jihadi doll bludges, and the intent from America and from Australia is, to, is the same, to divide us uh, between Muslims and non-Muslims, and we know we need to resist this. Please make Muhammad welcome. Thank you. Assalamu uh, alaikum, bismillah rahman rahim I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. I just returned this morning from the States, and I've seen the groundswell that has taken place there. It has united people. It has brought people from all walks of life, working together, championing a cause, the refugees and the migrants. Today, uh, we have seen the Jewish people, I would like to acknowledge the Jewish people and the rabbis who broke Sabbath on Saturday to protest against Donald Trump's horrible uh, racist comments and racist uh, edict. America has been a land of welcome and statue of liberty. If you read the lines that are there below the Statue of Liberty, it says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free and wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send this homeless tempest toss to me. I lift my land beside the golden door. This is what the Statue of Liberty uh, stands for, and Donald Trump doesn't stand for what America believes in. We have seen, I've seen, I've been to the airports there. I've been there the last 10 days. I've seen things happen at the airport. I've seen people coming together, both young and old, both the natives of America, they had a beautiful dance that took place which shook and reverberated across the whole nation. And that was the support and the groundswell for the refugees and the Muslim migrants. Can I say this? 
Refugees do not go to other countries because they just want to. They become a refugee when things become bad for them, when they feel the threat to their life and to their children. Today in Australia, we have a big problem here. The government has been quiet. The government has not raised its voice against Donald Trump's edicts. Neither have they done anything about the refugees who have been tossed at this moment between Donald Trump's comments and what our Prime Minister talks about. We need to bring back our refugees from Nauru and Manus Islands. We need to stand strong and bring them back here to Australia. This is a land of the fair go, and we need to believe in that, and we need to stand together. Can I say thank you very much on behalf of the Muslim community. We have seen in Quebec the Prime Minister of Canada. We need leaders of that nature. We need a leader of that nature to stand here and be our Prime Minister. Let us work towards this. Let us be united. I think united we can stand and strong as ever. Thank you. No hate, no fear. Muslims are welcome here. No hate, no fear. Muslims are welcome here. No hate, no fear. Muslims are welcome here. No hate, no fear. I think it's really important to talk about refugees because if anyone has seen the news in the last couple of days, you'll see Donald Trump going on and on about how the deal between America and Australia to house the refugees from Manus Island in Nauru is dumb. And we know that this deal is not good enough. This deal is not good enough for the people who languish on Manus Island in Nauru. As Mohammed said, we need to bring them here. We need to close down Manus Island in Nauru and bring those refugees to Australia. Our next speaker is uh, Richard Di Natale, the leader of the Greens. And Richard has been one of the few voices in Parliament uh, to stand up against Pauline Hanson, our own uh, racist far-right uh, loser. <laughs> He let us walk out during her maiden speech and it's this type of resistance that we need to see uh, to make sure that we don't normalise racism in our society. Make Richard welcome. Thank you. Let me first begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people. I want to pay my respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge that this is always has and will be Aboriginal land. And let me also recognise that unless you're a descendant of one of the many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, then you too have come across the seas to make Australia your home. That you too and your ancestors are immigrants just like those many people who this nation and indeed the American president seeks to reject. We have a proud history of accepting people from right across the world, people who have sought freedom and peace and have chosen to make Australia their home. And that's a story that we share with America, but it is now a story that is under threat because of the actions of a dangerous, unhinged and vile man called Donald Trump. 
This is a man who seeks to extinguish the hope that so many people hold for our nation and indeed for America. This is a man who seeks to use fear and division to pit one person against another for his own narrow political gain. This is a man whose misogyny knows no bounds. This is a man who calls Mexicans rapists and murderers. This is a man who is unleashing a wave of Islamophobia, not just in America, but right across the world. And together we say no. And let us ask ourselves, what has been the response of our Prime Minister at a time when leaders right across the world are condemning the actions of this dangerous president? We've had silence here in Australia. Now is not the time for silence. It's the time to take a stand. It is the time to stand up and say to Donald Trump, our interests are no longer your interests. It is time to say no longer, no longer does the US alliance protect us, but it is now a source of danger. It is time to say that the nation's peace and security, indeed the world's peace and security, lies not in the US, but lies in resisting the actions of the US. It is no longer time for appeasement. It is time for leadership. We cannot continue to hitch our security to a madman on the other side of the world. And it's now time more than ever to take a stand in this nation, to stop using our defence forces to harm innocent people who come here doing nothing else but looking for protection. It's time to spring those people locked up in those concentration camps, to bring them here, to bring them to Australia. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. Team Lister, when, well, it's been weeks really, but in this case, a week when big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull announced he had found the solution to fossils frying our planet. Fossils, he pronounced, will solve the little problem of fossils wiping out the planet. So effective a solution, he would utilise the Clean Energy Corporate Welfare Fund to fund fossils, preventing fossils wiping out the planet. 
noted clean energy fund, not renewable energy. His Minister for Fossils, Josh Frydem Icebergs, put the odd critic who suggested expanding fossils to counter fossils mightn't quite be the solution of the year in her his place. But as Malcolm and Josh pointed out, we're talking clean fossils, clean coal. Well, cleaner coal, they conceded. Uh, then why not just fund more renewables that don't fossil pollute at all? The odd put in her his place critic criticked. Because, excuse me a moment, and at this point Malcolm interrupted the fossils lined up behind him with their drooling snouts moving to the trough. Why don't we just fund renewables that don't fossil pollute at all? For God's sake, Malcolm, isn't it obvious... Of course, sorry. Uh, sorry for that break, but it's obvious. In the weeks that were bit, just as Malcolm was looking a bit sick, thanks to his health minister, who was looking politically very unhealthy, unlike her very healthy taxpayer-funded bank book, surprise, surprise, we suddenly found terrorists in our midst. Just another sheer coincidence when a diversion was very helpful indeed. But the bit I found fascinating, and it picked up the... A touch unnecessary award of the break was the woman outside caught in full burqa with a with but a couple of pupils, as in eye pupils, almost visible, who held up a newspaper to hide her face. And I thought, why, if you're wearing a full burqa, would you? Anyway, we'd send her her a touch unnecessary award, or even the unnecessary touch award, except we've got no idea who she is. Unless her name is Islamic Times, January 5, 2017. And as coincidence goes, what luck for good old international aluminium giant Algoa raid the public purse that just as, after years of the public purse picking up its power bill, its 10% or so of all the electricity in Victoria bill, the contract drawn up by former big supremo Jeff Footinmouth and his privatisation guru Alan Stockdill retaining a body called the SEC whose sole role has been to pay Algoa raid the public purse's electricity bills just as the contract expired and the boardroom might have to pay its own bills heaven forbid heaven stepped in and the plant packed up and Algoa raid the raid they said it would have to close down and sadly have to let go all those workers heartbreaking for poor Algoa unless the public purse came to the rescue and everyone said if it had to close down because it had to pay for its 10% of all our electricity it would clearly be the public purse's fault the government's fault but thankfully we're all paying its bills again and thanks to Malcolm they'll be using only clean fossils which will prevent the wiping out with fossils so it's a win-win uh, apart from all those welfare bludgers, that is, non-corporate welfare recipients, bludgers whom some robot or computer has discovered have all been cheating the public purse big time. And the really clever bit is those trying to contact the robot or computer who feel they just may not have been cheating can't get through, let alone the prospect of talking to a real human being. So their time for appeal runs out and I'll go raid the public purse and other non-bludging, non-cheating snouts in the recipients of corporate welfare live happily ever after. 
although not so happy, the landed aristocracy with huge pastoral holdings around Shoalwater Bay up, up in arms metaphorically, because those who are up in arms non-metaphorically, the train killer lot, plan to acquire their land. Well, with market forces compensation to extend train killer exercises and accommodate Singapore train killers who will train to train kill here with our cream of true blue Aussie youth, young men and women in uniform, life of the party, love their families and dear little children, fun to be with trained killers. The metaphorical lot asking, how can people just come and take our land? which is something they should know, given it's something the non-people who own the land before we stole it, the terra nullius non-people, ask themselves time and again, although they can add they weren't even compensated, but that's only because they are terra nullius and don't even exist. And beside, they didn't even value add to the land, and they'd certainly had plenty of time to do that, several thousand years plenty of time, just pagan savages or not, given the, the Terra Nullius bit. The Terra Nullius lot had the audacity, the arrogance, backed by their long-haired commie, wooden work in an iron, black armband acolytes, like that out-of-control, former caring business class party minister Ian McFarting, to claim our great national day, True Blue Aussie Day, is the product of some mythical invasion, when we know His Most Gracious Majesty authorised this small extension of England, their England. Have these savages no respect for the crown, which has done so much for them? Civilization and the dear baby Jesus for a start. Silly suggestions that the day was divisive and full marks to the usual in-depth tele-news services showing of all the huge rallies across the country, only or mostly only the few seconds of scuffles at the Sydney rally, but Malcolm restored common sense on behalf of all common sense, let's enjoy, let's appreciate the greatest country in the world people, asserting the day would not be changed because the date of invasion, the arrival of the first illegal, no proper papers, queue jumping boat people, highlighted True Blue Aussies' harmony and tolerance. We've got to wonder just what bit of the debates Malcolm missed, or worse, his powers of comprehension. Perhaps he's ingested too much of the depleted uranium turned loose by those trained killer exercises. Now it's Her Most Gracious Majesty, of course, with big changes at the top as our leader, Her Most Gracious, announced she would lighten her workload this year by reducing the number of organisations of which she is patron. And at her age, we can understand and sympathise with that as patron is such an onerous and exhausting job involving, as I see it, the back-breaking work of having your name stuck at the top of all this letterhead. And two of her equally hard-working inbred lot, the bald one and the swastika one, said they would erect a statue of their mum, presumably at public expense, to commemorate her achievements. Again, achievements? Begging the obvious, uh, what? Sadly, they didn't elaborate. She did achieve putting those two at the front of the British doll queue. Now, 
229 years after those first illegal boat people, we were hoping to get away without reminding ourselves of the new US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor. But, well, thanks to Donald, Malcolm's week just got worse and worse over non-illegal boat people whom politicians and the mainstream media declare are illegal. With Donald asking, how come the US OB should assume the responsibility for true Lawazi's responsibility? Which, despite what we might think of Donald, isn't a bad question. Bad people, bad dudes. And while we're sympathising with Donald, his comment, talking to Malcolm, was his worst call by far. Very bad. Very, very bad. We can also understand, although these people deserve each other. And maybe his dumb comment after talking to Malcolm wasn't just about the terrorist illegal boat people deal. And we have to thank Donald for unearthing all these terrorists we had no idea were terrorists, like entire countries full of them. And then there's film director Asghar Fahadi, who's 2012 Best Foreign Language Oscar winner, The Separation, we thought was a sensitive, humane film in the spirit of the Iranian film industry in recent years. But no. Obviously a piece of subliminal terrorist agitprop. As for Hardy is up for the same award again this year, a film called The Salesman, but thanks to Donald's alert but not alarmedness, he won't be allowed to attend. His presence would obviously be a threat to all US armed citizens. And can't terrorist cells be insidious? Thank goodness, or maybe thank God in this case, the US have exposed a major true blue Aussie terrorist. It refused a visa for Fred Nile. <laughs> Who would have thought? Although many might say he's been terrorising anyone to the left of Donald Trump or the poor for years. Finally, True Blue Aussie's most pressing matter this year. No, not homeless ferals making life uncomfortable for the comfortable on their way to enjoy the tennis and obviously pay their tributes to the working class site handed to the elite by a socialist state government. Nor crime running riot because all these 12-year-olds aren't locked up for life. 12-year-old ferals, no doubt. No, back where we started, Malcolm. Just as fossils are the answer to the problems of fossils, the road to riches for those homeless ferals and criminal ferals and lazy avaricious workers and non-workers generally is so simple. Just make sure their caring employers don't pay tax. Which does, by the way, again, beg a certain question. And the Flinders Street dystopia transforms like a blooming rose through the tending of the caring business class into a national utopia. 2017, onward and upward. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. As I said, Kevin's back in the chair and uh, this is the week that was. Uh, And another person who's... Back in the chair, we've got Humphrey. Hello, Humphrey, how are you? Hello there, how are we? Good, it's good to hear you. It's good to hear you too, and it, what, a, what a great time it is to be alive. <laughs> well, great disorder under heaven. Yes, uh, well, uh, r- roll. I mean, I think there might be about, I mean, I know I'm, I know I'm exaggerating, but they might just manage to inflict that wound, that mortal wound on US imperialism that we on the left have been struggling for for decades but have never quite managed to deliver, they might manage to do it to themselves. But <laughs> we'll give them whatever help we can. You think it's a hurry-curry moment for the Republicans? 
Well, not the Republicans. It's the, well, I mean, the real, you know, from their point of view, the real danger, as I'm saying in this, you know, I want to say this morning, is to the whole of the empire. Oh, that'd be fantastic. Well, it would, but, you know, we can't hope for too much and we have to do our bit too, which is what we're going to try, a tiny little bit. We're going to try to tiny do a little bit. And we've got, we've got to begin by pointing out that we've got an excuse for a government that made no preparations at all, apparently, for Trump killing the Trans-Pacific Partnership. What, everybody knew that... So it is. Yeah, but everybody I mean, knew I mean, that he wasn't... How not know it was coming? Yeah. He, you know, I mean, it, he said know, he didn't that. agree with it. And, and they did no preparation. And you might ask, well, of course, given the position that, that, that they... the supine position they put towards the rest of the world anyway, what could they have done... Um, had they known exactly when and where you know, this this blow was going to land, um, and that's you know, pretty true that we you know that they're clearly prepared to put up with anything. Um, but our job around solidarity breakfast and around the left in general is to stay focused on what might happen, um, and to try and make sense of it, and to make us mentally and politically prepared for what is likely to be rolling down the crisis path in the, you know, in the next short to medium term. So, so what we'll do you think? That. Do you think that um, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership was so important to the Turnbull government and the corporates that uh, they were blind to? Uh, they have no other white rabbits coming out of their oh, head. No, well, I know. I don't think the corporates are all in this position. I mean, one of the things we've got, I mean, we're not going to talk about that this morning and we shouldn't get too diverted, but uh, whatever that corporates needed, and that's the other thing we've got to say, it's need, not want. They've got to have these things. They're going to find another way to get it, whether the whether yep. it's the TPP or by other particular deals that they'll do. So they don't but lose focus. They don't lose well, focus. Well, you know, there's a kind of delay for them at the moment. All right, uh, okay. Now, know. one of the things is that this is the 150th year of uh, the publication of uh, Dust Capital, and as you rightly point out, Marx didn't separate the two terms, political and economy. He certainly did not, and that's what we're going to go on to this morning. As I say, you know, we've been looking over the last couple of years almost month after month, this aspect of the financial or this aspect of the economic. and you know, I mean, we haven't kept the political out of it because we keep on saying capitalism won't fall over by itself. Um, even if it economically implodes, there's still the political power of the state that they've got to, to hold on to, to such you know, economic power as they can. Um, but for Marx, it wasn't just... Um, an economic analysis. Uh, he was never an economic determinist. Um, political economy, uh, that is the class struggle and the power of the state. But also Marx was making a critique of political economy. Um, very often the last bit about that it is constantly analysing and reanalyzing what you've discovered already. I mean, Marx was the last person to rest on his laurels and say, oh, well, I've discovered this, now I'll, you know, I'll just forget about that and go on to something else, or not assume that perhaps my first version wasn't the most complete version that I could have. So we need always to bring that political and the power of the state, and this means we've got to understand again what Marx did mean 
when he talked about the political. Um, so now, what did he I mean? Was, well, I think we need to get... Because the word political has become so much tied to a very narrow version of the political, that is about voting for people into Parliament or into Congress. Uh, you know, and and uh, what did they, Engels and, uh, I can imagine Engels and Marx sitting around <laughs> saying parliamentary cretinism. Well, uh, this is the phrase they came up with to describe Fantastic. it. And, I mean, it's a phrase that can, again, like political, can be badly misunderstood because you think, oh, it's about politicians who are cretins. That's not what, that's not what they're saying at all. No. These can be the most intelligent, unfortunately, most intelligent people around. Um, for them, what, what they were saying was that one level of parliamentary cretinism was that you think, oh, you change the law, therefore you change the world. Well, a change in the law does change the world to some extent, there's no doubt about that, but you're not going to really bring about the changes that socialists want just by thinking that you can trail along behind something like the anti-Labour Party um, and as we're constantly told, oh, you know, make sure they get into government and then we'll be able to change these bad laws. Yeah, they change them, they make them worse. So, the Well, that was the theory, of, wasn't it? Well, that, For the, that uh, was. For the Chartists. Yeah, yeah. Um, now... I mean, they wanted more because, you know, well, you know, it's a bit of history, but we should know, we, we won't, we'll resist going down there. But now I think something, another element has come into parliamentary cretinism, and that is this obsession with personality politics. Celebrity. Uh, well, the celebrity. I mean, and, and the notion, unfortunately, it's infected everybody. It's infected around the left. We saw it with the Hate Howard campaign. We saw it with the, with the Loathe Abbott campaign. We're seeing it in spades now with Donald Trump. Now, if you, played if, football, if you played football, you'd say it was playing the man, not the ball. No, well, and not playing the game. And what is the game? <laughs> the game is capitalism. Yeah. The game is exploitation. You know, we're not talking, you know, I mean, the reason that Howard and Abbott and Trump do these things is not because just because they're nasty people. Yeah, you can say that. But you could get smooth, nice people there doing the same kinds of things because of the needs of the capitalist system. And that's what we've always got to focus on. We've got to ask ourselves, what are the needs of the capitalist system that parliamentary cretinism, both in the kind of vote and all will be solved, or, oh, get rid of this nasty person and all will be solved. There are two things we've got to ask ourselves. What are the needs of capital and how does the state apparatus serve those needs? They're the two big political questions. I just have to remind everybody they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast and we're having a yarn with uh, Humphrey McQueen, the uh, the great Humphrey McQueen. Oh, well, only because I am expressing the views of the very, very great Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Um, we're, just, we're just here to channel that. <laughs> um, now, so one of the things we do is if, if we're looking at these questions, what are the needs of capital? There are some needs of capital that are always there for as long as there's a capitalist system. And the fundamental one of those, of source, is that the capital is that capital has to expand in order to exist. I mean, this is one of the things that just what is in many ways, the thing that distinguishes the capitalist system from slavery and from other other forms of, of the modes of production, that it has to keep on expanding. And there's only one way it can do that, and that is to exploit the rest of us. 
and it does it by making us add as much value, surplus value as it can, to the wealth of the natural world. Uh, and so it's exploiting us and plundering the natural world at the same time. Yep. Now, what we've got to always be careful about, I mean, that's true. I mean, that's a big thing for people to understand. And, you know, I've been you know, at it for decades and I realise even, you know, people who are really sympathetic trying to get our heads around that is, you know... Well, I mean, these, these, really are, got to think about. these are the reasons for why the whole issue of environmentalism and sustainability is such a hard breakfast for them to eat because they don't want it to be... They can't understand the notion of finite. The corp, uh, Capitalism just is a, not just a disease but a virus. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, um, and the other thing that's interesting is uh, why they're so interested in automa- automation. <laughs> Get rid of the worker. <laughs> well, try to, yes. Yeah, the, um, prob- the problem is, of course, you know, as you say, there's that side for the corporates, but trying to convince environmentalists that the driving force of the problem is the capitalist system. That's, I don't find that an easy job either. They don't want yeah, to think about it. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? It's just so much it's easier the air to think that... about, oh, lovely nature, we'll protect the trees yeah. or something. It's the air people no, are breathing, isn't it? No, we've got to overthrow the capitalist state. Oh, no, we can't do that. Yeah, the you know? air that people are breathing. So, so anyway, um, so we've got to always ask ourselves, how exactly are these things happening? I mean, it's one thing to say, yes, there's capitalism, there's exploitation, the plunder of the natural world, but it doesn't always happen in the same way in every place at the same time. And if you're going to be a materialist, you're not looking for those grand generalities. You're looking for what's happening here and now in a particular way and how it's likely to change in the next couple of years. And you've got to, you know, and you've got to be able to keep up with those changes. Um, so one and of so the when, you say, when you say that, does that mean that a person who is a materialist and is trying to see things within a, time frame, a certain time frame so mm. they can be ahead of the game are actually quite um, myopic because they're only focusing on one thing over a very short uh, time frame? Oh, no, no. As long as you keep that, you know, those basic facts about capitalism expanding through exploitation and the plunder of nature, if you keep those things in mind, then you're making sense of each of the particulars. Okay. But if, but if, but if all you've got is the, oh, exploitation, surplus value, yeah, but pay no attention to how capitalism is transformed. You know, and, and if you think of what's happening in Australia today... And what was happening in Japan 150 years ago? Right. You know, two different times and places. And what was happening? Capitalism was just getting underway after the Meiji Restoration. Right. So you've always got to be. I mean, I gave that you know as a kind of extreme example. But you know what was happening in Australia? Even say, well, let's even go back 50 years. The way in which capitalism was operating here then was very different. In, in its everyday activities, and you've got, to, you've got to be paying attention to those. But if that's all you're doing, if you're just looking, then you're engaging really in parliamentary cretinism again. Oh. So you need, you need to be able to do both the strategic and the tactical. Uh, and you know, it's hard work, you know, very hard work. Um, but, you know, if you aren't doing that, then you're not really advancing the cause as much as we need to to be able to have it happen. Now, what's the function of the state? 
Now, again, on the left, there's, there's this kind of still left, oh, well, if the government's doing it, it's better than if a corporation's doing it. Well, perhaps, but remember, the state is the executive committee of the bourgeoisie. The state is not our friend. It's the instrument of class rule. And too often around the left, uh, recent times with you know this nonsense about uh, this bad word, privatisation, there's no private about it. It's corporate. I mean, they're not selling it to, you know, to the sort of person next door or to you. It's not being private in that sense. They talk about private schools. There are, there are a couple of private schools. Um, they're run by Kumon. All the other so-called private schools are tax-funded. It's really uh, funny, isn't it, that term private? Oh, it's a private concern, you know. You yeah, shouldn't... <laughs> and, you know, all, all the, you know, this other thing. Oh, it's an independent school. Okay, yeah. let them be independent and of not what? take any tax money. Yeah, independent you know, That would be what? great. But, you know, they use private and use independent as an ideological mask for what they really are. And, unfortunately, the left so often just repeats this word yeah, that, oh, we've got to stop privatisation. What we've got to do is to stop the sellout to the big corporates. That's the language you've got to use. Yeah, that's right, because it's a, it's a crooked deal, isn't it? It sure is. And, you know, uh, well, uh, so the state's not our friend. What I keep saying, you know, and there's seven words, and you can say them three times a day before and after meals. The state organises capital and disorganises labour. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but if you don't grasp that, that that's what the state fundamentally is there for. You see, but most, most people feel like they, they're part of, the, you know, they're at the table, as it were, and the alternative is chaos. Well, I mean, that, I think, is, you know, is, in a sense, where, I mean, I think it's why so many people are so distressed about the Trump um, sort of... Phenomenon? Well, phenomena and, you know, that, that I mean, I'm not talking about the far left or anything, although there's a bit of it around there. The notion that, well, you know, Hillary was better than Trump or that, or that the smiling assassin Obama was, you know, kind of, you know, well, at least he was sort of black or something. Therefore, you know, America was the last best hope. Yeah, because um, as demonstrates, I mean, the, the thing, interesting thing is about Trump's wall is that actually the wall was started by Clinton, continued by Obama and yeah. just extended by Trump. Yeah, but, you know, it's this sense that if, I mean, if people's fantasy or their hope that if the you know if if the US isn't there as on, on sort of on on the side of order and you know stability in the world, then everything is gone. So that there's a real panic, I think, around that. And we need to push on to look at what the state's supposed to be doing. And indeed, I mean, what what the state and the corporations are really terrifying terrified about is that we're not taking their orders anymore. That what what the Trump election and the and the vote to leave the EU in Great Britain and you know the politics right across Europe and much of the rest of the world are really indicating is that the safe channels see one of the ways in which the state organizes the working class you know, or shall I say disorganizes us for our interest 
is to organise this into what they consider to be safe channels. Organising us into the arbitration system in the old days, still organising us, into they would hope, into the safe channel of supporting the Labour Party and thinking that's all you've got to do. So, by and large, around the world, people aren't taking those orders anymore. They're doing things they're not supposed to do. Now, sometimes they're things that we're quite... Um, happy for people to be doing on the left and sometimes they're things, well, we're not so happy about. But that great disorder has come out of decades of economic transformation, of people losing jobs, losing the possibility of having a future. It, I mean, it didn't start in 2007-8. It started 50 years ago. Um, really, in America, those loss of those jobs in the whole of the old industrial centre really started under Carter in, in, in the late 1970s. Yes, and people that's right. have been trying to, you know, as I saw a couple of old farmers who'd voted for Obama, have been lifelong Democrats, probably voted for Robert La Follette and the P Progressive Party, or their grandparents did, they were going to vote for Trump. Why? Yep. They said, because we've got to get them to listen to us. They won't listen. This is our. We, we don't expect Trump to do anything for us. So that general sense of breaking out of where you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to how, you, how you're supposed to behave. It's quite so that, clever, really. Well, I mean, in an awful way, act, it's a kind of act of desperation. Yeah. Because you know, I mean, if you look at the, you know, I mean, what the last time there was to be a French presidential candidate, mm. the socialists were thinking about planning to put up Strauss-Kahn as the, as the representative of, of, the, of the French working class. Who's that? I mean, Strauss-Kahn was that creep who got caught um, really um, sexually oh, assaulting oh, the maid in the hotel. Yes, sorry, but, I've forgotten his name. Well, you know, I mean, he's oh, the head right. of the IMF. You know, and supposedly... Oh, that's you awful. Know, I mean, you're supposed to go to somebody who's been unemployed in Marseille for two generations and say, Strauss-Kahn is, you know, is, is the representative of the working class. And what is this thing that uh, they think that preying on women is, um, oh, that, you know, that's just okay, their politics is okay? Yeah, what are, well, what, what's going away, on? Oh, they've been getting away with it for millennia. That's ridiculous. No, it's not. It's a continuation of what's been going on for thousands of years. Unbelievable. And there's nothing new about it. And it's only recently that, that you know, that people it's are unacceptable. organising. Yeah, that it's unacceptable. Know, and, and standing up to it and saying, yeah. no, no, no. So that's the other part of the class, that the class can fight back in the state. Um, now, what I want to get on to... We'll yep. have to right? Sorry, I'll shut up. Get no, on. No, no, no. I'm sort of trying to really uh, jump ahead to that. I mean... What we've seen now, I think, and what we have been saying now, is that there's long unravelling um, of that economic settlement after the Second World War, what was supposed to be the long boom, people having jobs and you know every, everything getting better. That's been going on for 40 years, and that economic impact has burst through in a whole lot of... of various political ways, some of them with election results, some of them with people rejecting the referenda in Italy. You know, they're not, they're not voting about the EU. They're not just voting about those changes to the Italian constitution. They're saying, we don't want to go on in this kind of way. This is an opportunity for us to say no 
to all the things you're trying to do to us. So what we now have is a situation in places where the state, which is supposed to be their organising capital, is dysfunctional. Mm. We're getting more and more what we could call semi-failed states. And it looks as if, you know, I mean, the United States might be about to enter into that category as well. Um, And that if that happens, what it means is that the disruption that flowed out of the economic realm into the political realm is now going to feed back uh, into the, the whole of the economic issues that a strong government, and I'm talking in terms of what are the needs of the capitalist system, a strong government there just isn't in existence. You know, we had Spain that didn't have any kind of administration for several months um, and really still doesn't have one. Um, and, you know, the Italians haven't had a government for a couple of months. Um, at a time in which the crises of how to manage the system have perhaps never been more acute. So that what, we, what we're seeing and what I want to focus on and sort of end us with this morning is to see that we now have the consequences throughout the political system of this long period of economic upheaval. And now, however, the, the inability of the states to be effective in terms of the interests of the capitalist system. That's what, that's what we've got to see. Now, our job, of course, on the left is to make sure that the working class is as effective as we can possibly be in resisting all of the attacks that are going to come. Uh, but unless we can, unless we get this sort of you know, broader picture of how these things are interacting with each other, and of course what will happen is that as that political feeds back into the economic and the economic gets more intense, that will feed back into the political system again. Um, and so so if we go back to what you said earlier, the corporates will uh, get what they want if it's well, one way to... or another. No, no, the, you know, they'll only get what they want if the working class, class isn't yeah. strong enough to shop. To no, no, that, shop. That, that's what I mean. Yeah, I, yeah, I understand. Yeah. I understand yeah. what you're no, saying. No, I mean, of course, as long as they have state power, they have an advantage over us. They've got a monopoly of violence. Um, they have state power. They have all of those, what we could call the deep state, as it used to be. And I'd have to say that perhaps one of the great um, blocks to Donald Trump and his ambitions, or whatever they might be, is the power of that deep state. We saw it with Edward Snowden's um, exposures of what they get up to around the world. Um, and if, if, if Trump, if the Trump presidency looks like wrecking the US empire, the deep state will surely take him out because they're not, they're not, they're not going to let that happen. No, they're not going to have it. And we've seen it in a way with the CIA and the NSA making him accept what they know is a lie, what he knows is a lie, and what everyone who knows about it is a lie, is that it was the Russians who hacked the um, Central Democratic Committee. Um, that wasn't what happened at all, but they made him say that, yes, it was, and that's one indication that of the first of these strikebacks by the what we used to call the invisible government. Oh, um, goodness. They are still there. They ain't oh, gone away. We, we have to finish, Humphrey. We have to finish. That's well, so... we'll be back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That riveting Much stuff. Much to do. It's going to be a great effort. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Oh, that was Humphrey McQueen, uh, McQueen uh, 
getting us all uh, ready for what is going to be a big year in uh, economics and politics and working class struggle. You're on Solidarity Breakfast. We've come to the end of the program. At the early part of this, uh, the program, we talked, we listened to Bill Mitchell, who delivered a speech at uh, the new international bookshop down in Carlton in August last year. And I've divided it up into several parts. We have to thank Chris White for recording it. Uh, and uh, the first half was about uh, don't confuse neoliberalism with globalisation. This time he was talking about uh, possible uh, progressive futures and not to be confused by neoliberal uh, propaganda, effectively, you know, where people are believing that some things are solutions in their good-hearted manner, but in actual fact they're uh, devils in disguise. But anyway, uh, you can go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, the uh, We followed it up with a report on the uh, speeches that were given last night at the Steps of State Library in Victoria, Melbourne, uh, talking anti-Trump, anti-racism, uh, in response to the executive order in America uh, to ban uh, eight countries of origin Muslims and it's caused chaos effectively, but also a lot of backlash uh, with public disaffection uh, and court cases and uh, the first, uh, um, uh, uh you know, people being fired, that sort of stuff. Anyway, uh, very interesting. Following that, that the uh, first uh, This Is The Week That Was for the Year from Kevin and a great discussion about uh, the possible roads that uh, we will be walking in 2017 with uh, Humphrey McQueen. We're going to go out now with a nice song, perhaps. No, no, I thought I'd... Uh, play a bitter little song. Uh, Paul Kelly from, uh, he won an, an Austra- Order of Australia, which I, I think is slightly amusing. Uh, None of Your Business Now is the song. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Goodbye from Annie. Send me no more letters Nor ask me how I'm going it might make you feel better But it's none of your business knowing It's none of your business now You say you regret it And hope we can be Just don't get it But none of this business can mend It's none of your business now You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.